Welcome to DIA Today, Democracy in America Today. I'm Matt Parks alongside Dave Corbin. Glad to have you with us as we explore the ideas behind today's headlines. How you doing, Dave? Doing great. How about yourself, Matt? First week yeah. of school? Yeah, just uh, had my first class just a few minutes ago wrapping up, uh, t- teaching about Lincoln and Lincoln as a political thinker. Looking forward to this semester. Great group of students. And start the rest of the semester on Tuesday next week. Looking forward to that as well. Always a lot of optimism and excitement around the beginning of a semester, even though this isn't exactly the semester that we would have designed for ourselves. Uh, but it'll be good to be in front of students again. Meanwhile, definitely a busy week in political things. And we have a lot to talk about. Leading off, we're going to talk about one of the consequences of a change in presidencies. So this is from a CNN story written inauguration day. President Joe Biden is finalizing 17 executive moves just hours after his inauguration Wednesday, moving faster and more aggressively to dismantle his predecessor's legacy than any other modern president. So what follows in the story is 17 executive orders or various actions that he takes in different areas of policy. Hitting the ground running, Dave. To the victor goes the executive orders, I guess, is the, <laughs> is the lesson here. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that has been kind of clear throughout American history and, and recent American history is the use of the executive order by executives. Um, nothing like uh, FDR's use of it in, in the 1930s, but there have been some 14,000 executive orders uh, from the beginning, uh, from Washington's first order, that uh, he'd like a clear assessment of things from his cabinet members uh, up into the present day and, and these past uh, 17. I think it tells you a little bit about the nature of the American political system, uh, both in the 20th century and in, in 2021. Uh, the, this is just the way our, our government works right now. We expect a lot to be done at the national level, and we expect the executive to get things done, uh, to fulfill their promises, and uh, this is an easier way to get this done. I don't know uh, the degree to which uh, this will will move things um, in the right direction, Uh, probably better if you're aiming for unity uh, to try to rally around uh, new policies and and such, Uh, but uh, certainly if you're a Joe Biden supporter, then President Biden for you uh, fulfilled uh, a little bit of what he promised to you uh, in the run-up to the 2020 election. Yeah, and that's one of the things that you, know, you see as you work your way down through the list. There are some things that are maybe substantively policy-directed, but a lot of this is, if not symbolic, at least uh, to be indicative of support for various constituencies, right? to show your bona fides. I'm in favor of this, I'm not in favor of that. And a number of these were directly attempts at repealing Trump policies, again, some of those policies, maybe not anything much more than symbolism of his own sort, but but now we have the Biden symbolism in response. But you also have the underlying question of just how far policy should be dictated by executive order. And of course, that's a a question we've been talking about, um, well, really, as as we've looked at political things over many years. But I think we see that uh, the way that the executive branch has centralized authority um, raises obvious questions about just what the role of the Congress is in some of these areas anymore. Yeah, and I think, you know, in addition to that, you have the tangible influence that, say, canceling the Keystone Pipeline will have 
on a variety of different workers in that field, you know, Texas North, but then the one that, um, and, and, you know, I'm not in that industry, but I can imagine that's a great scare for them. But as a teacher of politics and American politics, uh, the most interesting one to me was the rescinding the Trump's administration 1776 commission and the report that it had released on Monday regarding American history. Uh, that strikes, I think, at a great difference or distinction between the Republican Party and the Democratic Party that longer term will have a great bearing upon some of the themes in President Biden's speech um, as, as regards what democracy is and, and what we can unify around. But more to be said about that later after we, we get to other things. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously they knew those on that commission that that commission would not survive the first day of the Biden presidency. So they got the report out. And so I guess you can cancel the report, but the report is actually out there. It's a real thing. And it did actually happen. So there's some obvious political symbolism in that. But you're right, as we talk about the issues of democracy and unity as we're going to develop over the course of our discussion in this podcast, I think we'll see some of the significance beyond the actual commission itself. What are the underlying commitments that this particular canceling of that commission and the report suggests on the part of Joe Biden and, and the party that he now leads? Well, with that having been said, why don't we turn to our required reading, Dave, our next section in Democracy in America. Why don't you lead us through it? Yes. So if you weren't with us last week, what we're doing this second season over the next 15 weeks is we're taking Tocqueville's Democracy in America and we're dividing it into 15 parts. And we're going to have a discussion of each of the 15 parts over the 15 weeks and then bring in an adjacent work from political philosophy uh, to help kind of round out that point from Tocqueville or compare the point that Tocqueville makes with a thinker from uh, a different day. So for our first session last week, we made our way primarily through Tocqueville's um, author's introduction to the work in which he sets out why he writes Democracy in America, what he initially sees, and, and what he makes of, of what he sees, what his intention is. And what he sees is a democratic revolution taking place across the world, uh, one that will change the human condition forever. And what he intends to do is to bring into play a new political science uh, that will, or new science of politics that will help us chart the course of modern democracy in a way that betters human flourishing. So it's no surprise when he goes into the details of how the world is becoming democratic, and in particular, America is becoming democratic, that he talks about the North American landmass, that he talks about the first settlers who came to the New World, what he calls the point of departure. And there where we pick up for today, he'll talk about the social state of the Anglo-Americans. He says the following, in order to know the legislation and mores of a people, one must therefore begin by studying the social state. And he tells us that the social state of the Americans is eminently democratic. We've seen in his coverage of the Puritans that uh, the Puritans had an intellectual flavor to their theology uh, that was democratic. But here he also moves to talk about the South, uh, a South that was more like an aristocracy than New England, but a South in which its leaders, he argues, were little different from the mass of the people whose passions and interests it easily embraced. It excited neither love nor hate. In some, uh, its aristocracy was weak and not 
lively. And then it goes on to say that it's just exactly these type of aristocrats in the South that will become that generation of Southerners that help lead the American Revolution a century, a century and a half later. The West, he tells us, uh, is um, a place where men hardly know one another because society does not yet uh, exist there. So how in each of these places would our social state be democratic? In New England, we're prone intellectually towards democracy. In the South, there's a type of aristocracy that's open up to a similarity between those who are haves and have nots. And in the West, uh, there's a little order or law there that allows uh, kind of a democratic spirit uh, to take hold. But the second influence that he points to in explaining why we are eminently democratic is really interesting. It's the um, influence that a state law has on a people. And he says, uh, not much has been said in the history of political thought on a state law and the influences uh, that, that it has. But when you think about the difference between a system based upon the firstborn or the firstborn male inheriting the property of a family or that property being divided among uh, children, among siblings, you can see how an estate law that went one way would maintain traditions and the hold that a land has upon a people, but an estate law that became democratic would soon shape not only families, but political society. Uh, it would bring into play all new types of wealth because it would multiply fortunes by dividing fortunes. And then thirdly, he talks about the influence of education in producing a democratic social state. He writes, I do not think there is a country in the world where in proportion to population, so few are ignorant and fewer learned men are found than in America. All of this is bound up in the desire for many Americans to have a comfortable living. The fact that not much time is dedicated to study, that there's no intellectual class per se, and there's a general level of conformity, he writes, about matters of religion, history, science, political economy, legislation, and government. So here, once again, on an educational front, democracy is pervasive. Not to say that there isn't intellectual inequality, but it's minimized, he argues, by the social norms that are in place. So what do you make of this argument, Matt, that uh, the American social state is, is democratic? Certainly it's not perfectly democratic, but you can see in his going through each of these areas uh, why he could make the case that what he sees before him is something that is new. You can certainly see how, especially someone like him who's coming from Europe, where you have real aristocracy, where you have the eighth Earl and the 17th Duke, and you have these family names and conglomerations of property that have been in those families for centuries. And you have the lower social status of other individuals that again is, is fixed for centuries. And so while you have sort of a, a pseudo aristocracy of sorts in some parts of the United States, and you can still talk about rich and poor, the extremes between those two groups are so much smaller that, that for somebody coming from a European background, it's, it's, it's just striking. So, you know, I think he's put his finger on something that actually Americans were well aware of. And so, you know, if you read Jefferson's autobiography, one of the things that he highlights as a critical early move that Virginia took was to end the law of primogenitor and entail, which controlled property succession and meant that you're now going to have fortunes divided up. So that over the course of time, 
whatever great fortunes of land might arise, and these would never be on the order, say, of some medieval European lord, but, but even when great fortunes did arise, the laws would encourage the division of those fortunes among the various children of one household. And so very quickly, as de Tocqueville then describes a couple generations later, big fortunes become mediocre fortunes, become small fortunes, and become the, the context for moving west to try to start a new fortune. And, and that becomes sort of the American story. Yeah, and, and as we mentioned last week, one of the things that holds together some of these individual communities, uh, such as the Massachusetts Bay Colony, is the fact that they are covenantal communities. So uh, they can have more democratization of their society, yet you have the society held together by their uh, common adoration and worship of God or, or dependence upon God's moral authority. And one of the questions that uh, Tocqueville is, is kind of prodding us on to ask is, as we move from a more micro-level covenantal community to a, a larger populated association, will we still be able to maintain that moral dependence and political independence? And he's not certain of that. He says that there'll be perhaps two great possibilities that come from this democratization of American society. Uh, either on the one hand, shared sovereignty, freedom, and the elevation of the small to the great, what we would call uh, lowercase r republicanism, or B, the absolute power of one alone, driven by the weak wanting to draw the strong to their level, preferring equality and servitude to inequality in freedom, what we'd call despotism. And this is going to be a dichotomy that he brings up over and over again in this work. Are we tending, because of this democratization, towards lowercase r republicanism that, that lends itself to human flourishing uh, or to a despotism that lends itself to human servitude? And here, at least initially, he has uh, within America of the 17th and 18th century, he has good reason to believe that the principle of sovereignty practiced by the American people will lead towards that lowercase r republicanism. Uh, he says in America that the sovereignty of the people is not hidden or sterile. It is recognized by mores, proclaimed by the laws, spreads with freedom and reaches its final consequences without obstacle. Always present in America from its start, it's advanced and become more pervasive by overcoming two obstacles an external obstacle, Great Britain as its mother country, and this thing that we've just mentioned, the eternal internal obstacle of the undemocratic division of inheritance and property qualifications for owners. He'll sum all this up by saying at the end of this section, over time in America, society acts by itself and on itself. Let me repeat that. American democratic society, all right, a society of sovereign partakers, acts by itself on itself. The people participate in the drafting of laws by the choice of the legislators, in their application by the elections of the agents of executive power. We just talked about executive orders. Here, they elect the agents of executive power. One can say that they govern themselves, so weak and restricted is the part left to the administration. Could we say that once again in the 21st century, that something weak and restricted is left is the part left to the administration. Uh, so much does the latter feel its popular origin and obey the power from which it emanates. So really, really 
interesting depiction of the initial sovereignty held by the American people that leads him in one of the more famous phrases in democracy in America to say the following, the people reign over the American world as does God over the universe. They are the cause and the end of all things. Everything comes out of them and everything is absorbed into them. Right. And of course, even in the way that he frames that, we, we see both the promise and the challenge that goes along with that. Uh, if you're familiar with 19th century Jacksonian era American politics, it's not all good that the American people reign over the American world as God does over the universe. In fact, as you move along in that period and you have ideas like popular sovereignty come about as it's applied to the question of slavery in the territories, now all of a sudden there's an argument, well, the people aren't just choosing their leaders. They're not just setting a, a course of policy as they adopt this set of candidates or that set of candidates, but they're actually determining whether something is right or wrong, that they are in some literal sense, God over America, insofar as they're able to determine the rightness or wrongness of political behavior and the rightness or wrongness of an institution like slavery. Yeah, and think of what happens to these spheres that we've been employing to understand this transformation that takes place in America. It's a great thing, right? One, a thing that's embraced by Tocqueville, that the Americans have a politically independent spirit. But what happens when you take that politically independent spirit and you combine it with a morally independent spirit, right? You see a significant transformation take place within the society itself. So uh, morally independent spirit might lead us, as you mentioned, to embrace things that are wrong, unjust, uh, et cetera. And they might also, uh, they might also lead us to fragment with one another. Because if there's no moral basis upon which a free society is held together, why do we trust one another anymore? Why do we pay deference to the law, et cetera? So um, here it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Much like that covenantal community that he emphasized earlier in the book, he'll turn to the New England town. He'll say that instead of talking about American democratic government and sovereignty from the federal level, taking up the federal government, which he'll get to and we'll get to next week, I'm going to take up the township. Uh, likewise, he employs um, a reference to God here. The township appears to issue directly from the hands of God. Why? Because political association at the local level is natural, right? We start out in families. Families gather together in villages. Uh, those, those places of, you know, 100 to 300 to 400 sometimes form townships. Uh, and these places are very independent. And it's a place where he'll argue you see the force, in his words, the force of a free people reside. So the New England town uh, in the 1800s uh, had two to 3,000 people. For those of our listeners uh, in New Hampshire, uh, those towns still have maybe uh, five to 7,000. But, you know, at the heart of every town, uh, are a group of churches uh, and then a town hall that can hold people every March. Uh, and this is uh, the essence uh, of a township, he says, where each individual is supposed to be as enlightened, as virtuous, as strong as any other of those like him. You go to your town hall, there's a deference paid uh, to uh, your other uh, citizens, the other res residents of that town. And when the decision is made in that town hall to do X, Y, and Z, why do you obey? And he replies, you obey because union with those like you 
appears useful to you. And because you know that this union cannot exist without a regulating power. So what I'm trying to say here, Matt, in, in analyzing this part of the text, is that Tocqueville sees in the town the spirit of political independence at play in a sovereign people actually doing things, actually being part of their political community, making choices. Now, where's the moral authority come from? The moral authority in this case right, doesn't come from a common allegiance to God per se, although there's a church next to the town hall, but in the utility, right, it's being useful to him and his knowledge right, that he's going to be in a difficult place if there's no regulating power over the two to 3,000 people that live around you. Yeah, I think we all know that from our experience, when you have a group of people that you live in close community with, that you've got a natural tendency to work toward consensus. Doesn't mean you always agree. And of course you might have rivalries that become deep-seated animosities over the course of time. But, but there's, there's always that desire, if you can, to figure out a way to, to get along because you almost have to. And in the small towns of New England or other parts of the United States, certainly in the day that took those writing, uh, that's just life. And your, your life is clearly interconnected with those people. And so you need to find ways to, to share common burdens. And of course, one of the challenges that goes along with that, which is one of the great tensions, I think, in American political thought, is what happens when that local group becomes not the expression of this rightful independence, but, but a faction that simply uses its power to do harm to those that are not in the majority. And so you have this, this constant tension of how much localism is required as a true expression of self-government and, and how much localism has to be restrained in order to prevent faction from being the dominant theme of our political life. All that said, though, what you see at play, and, and Tocqueville's portrait here is an American township that is independent, that um, employs just the right amount of power requisite to hold society together at that level. So uh, he's, he's going to overplay, right, an independence that produces commonality and that produces peace and that produces flourishing. We can imagine, right, as you mentioned, that there are localities where that doesn't happen. Uh, but here he'll say the spirit of the township is one that unites independence and power. And where we're going to go, Matt, as we move next week towards a discussion of the federal constitution is this question once again, if we have the hybrid form of moral dependence and political independence at work within a covenantal community, if we're able, as we build further out into towns to maintain that relationship between moral dependence and the political independence of two to 3000, is it possible when you move to 12 million citizens to continue to have a source for moral dependence that holds people together and allow them to have that independence that we see clearly in Tocqueville's description of the township. All right, so what's our assignment for next week, Professor Corbin? We're gonna start, if you're using the Winthrop Mansfield edition on page 146, and, and this is a subheader within this very long chapter titled On the Federal Constitution. Uh, this first subheader is what distinguishes the federal constitution of the United States of America from all other federal constitutions. 
And then he talks, secondly, on the advantages of the federal system generally and its special utility for America. And then thirdly, he takes up uh, this question, really interesting question, especially in the 21st century, of what keeps the federal system from being within reach of all peoples and what has permitted the Anglo-Americans to adopt it. So really the, the last 20 pages of his discussion of the federal constitution where he goes through uh, various uh, powers that are granted to the legislature, executive, and judicial branches, and then talks more in summary form about what was put in place uh, by the federal constitution. That, that's next week's reading. Sounds great. Sounds like a lot to talk about. Okay, so as mentioned, we, we try to have adjacent readings uh, from the history of political philosophy of ideas to our main Tocqueville reading for that week. And where I'd want to turn for this week uh, in discussing the township and something adjacent to it is what I would call the first political assembly of the Western world on display in Homer's Iliad, uh, book one of Homer's Iliad that begins with the wrath of Achilles. Uh, as we'll see, Matt, uh, book one of Homer's Iliad is not uh, an assembly uh, that is for the light of heart. It doesn't look anything like um, uh, a New England township <laughs> in the 1700s. Uh, here, of course, the great tension between Agamemnon, uh, the king, and Achilles, uh, son of Zeus. Uh, who is greater? Uh, who should have more honor? Who are the gods behind uh, who should rightly keep uh, the prizes that they've won from war, uh, a discussion uh, that involves more name-calling uh, than anything else, and that I think Homer shows us rightly, shows us the inability uh, of the Greeks uh, prior to the creation of Greek civil society uh, to act in common uh, for a, a common good. Uh, forces the rule uh, very much at play in Homer's Iliad. And there's very little of an idea of right. There's just a dispute uh, over it, which in this case of, of the beginning of the Iliad leads to the almost killing of Agamemnon by Achilles until the Greek goddess Athena holds him back uh, only for Achilles to say, well, I won't take uh, my sword and, and kill Agamemnon. I'll, I'll obey your word. And then thereafter say the following to Agamemnon. These are kind of comical lines uh, that you know, we, we think we have it bad in 2021. Here are Achilles' lines to Agamemnon. Heavy with wine, with the face of a dog, but the heart of a deer. I've never called you that, Matt. Heavy with wine, with the face <laughs> of a dog, but the heart of a deer. Thank you. But if you, but if you really don't like someone, that's what you see. You see, heavy with wine, with the face of a dog, but the heart of a deer. Never have you had courage to arm for battle along with your people. You, Agamemnon, are a people-devouring king since you rule over nobodies. <laughs> so uh, this, this is, uh, yes, I will not kill uh, you Agamemnon, but I am, I'll be sure to insult you and my insult will be sure to uh, bring from you a response that will bring about my wrath that will gnaw on my heart as much as I want what I say to gnaw on your heart. So not the makings, right, of kind of a consensus building affair. You know, how do you arrive at, at consensus? So, 
you know, here you have the example of Tocqueville in looking at the New England township. Uh, you have the example of right, this kind of first political body that assembles, that tries to produce some sense of unity. Where are we today? And then what can we take uh, from both of these examples as, as we apply these readings to our present day? Yeah, that's where we want to turn next. And I think maybe the most appropriate place to do that this week would be to take a look at uh, President Biden's inaugural address just from last Wednesday. And if you watched that or you read the speech later, uh, you probably noticed that there were really two major themes, uh, democracy, a word he uses 11 times in the speech, and unity, a word he uses eight times and other forms and variations would add to that number. So these are things that were clearly on his mind, began with democracy and moved toward unity. So let's, let's talk about both those and let's think about how his vision of democracy intersects with was seen in Tocqueville and then the kind of unity that obviously wasn't there in that assembly in Homer and yet could be there in that township. What's it look like when we talk about, especially a national unity, Right. Now we're no longer talking about two or 3,000 people or assembly of, of great heroes or even, for that matter, the 12 million you mentioned earlier. Now we're talking about 330 million people spread across a continent. What's it look like for that group to be united around ideas of democracy? So he opened by claiming that his victory was a victory not for a candidate, but for the cause of democracy. He says, this is America's day. This is democracy's day, a day of history and hope, of renewal and resolve. Through a crucible for the ages, America has been tested anew and America has risen to the challenge. Today we celebrate the triumph, not of a candidate, but of a cause, the cause of democracy. The will of the people has been heard and the will of the people has been heeded. And it goes on a little further later in the speech. And he gives a bit more definition to democracy in that context. And this is where he's, he's speaking to the American people and the, recognizing we had an election where there were two sides. And that's, of course, central to democracy is we have votes. And even if you win, you don't get all the votes. So he says, to all those who support our campaign, I'm humbled by the faith you have placed in us. To all those who did not support us, let me say this. Hear me out as we move forward. Take a measure of me and my heart. And if you still disagree, so be it. That's democracy. That's America. The right to dissent peaceably within the guardrails of our republic is perhaps our nation's greatest strength. And he goes on to say, I pledge this to you. I will be president for all Americans. I will fight as hard for those who did not support me as for those who did. So if we try to put this together, democracy entails hearing the will of the people and heeding the will of the people. But it also means protecting the right of the people to disagree peaceably within the guardrails of our republic and fighting for the minority as much as the majority. Anything missing there, Dave, or you'd like to see him add? Well, I mean, I, I do believe, right, that a presidential inauguration is, is an American day. So this, this idea that um, to the degree it represents a transfer of power that came out of an election. It's also democracy's day. So there's there's something in uh, that you know peaceful transition 
that is to be celebrated. And, and I would applaud, right, the words that, you know, minority opinion in addition to majority opinion uh, will be uh, secured. I think that's, that's, those are great words. Uh, they say they'll be fighting for the minority as much as the majority. Uh, those, are, those are good. Uh, I think that um, you run into some, some issues, right, however, in, in the speech when you begin to think that simply the will of the majority represents the definition of of what democ what make, makes democracy uh, good um, for for majority will right, to be good and democratic it has to have a certain character right it has to have a reasonable character uh, democracy has to be rightly understood by that majority and this is what happens right in every election right you have two parties, right, that are fighting to become the majority. They're fighting to get the most votes. And the best that you can hope for is that if they gain that majority status, they will work along these principles. The definition that I like best in defining democracy rightly understood is, is Jefferson's definition of equal rights for all and special privileges for none, right? So your party wins, right? You're now in power, but the way that you administer over the country thereafter is with equal rights for all and special privileges for none at the center of your being. Is that the definition that will be applied by the Biden administration over the days and weeks and months ahead? If, if it is, excellent. Then these words that were voiced on Wednesday, uh, I think will ring uh, to a pleasant applause by many in American, uh, but we have reason, right, to think that they may not, uh, given the age that we live in. Right, I think it's, it's important just to recognize that democracy properly understood isn't just about process, it's about substance. It's about the substance of the laws. And so the majority will expressed in election results or in particular laws is, is only a good thing and ought to only have the moral weight behind it that comes with legitimacy insofar as it actually corresponds with right. And so, of course, this is the challenge. You know, this is, uh, happens to be the 48th anniversary of, of Roe versus Wade. And you think about you know, the, the, the number of unborn children that have been killed legally in the country over those 48 years, you're talking about 65 million children. And so you think about if that's an expression of democracy and it's, it's not quite that because we know how Roe versus Wade imposed itself upon the democratic processes of our country. And yet one of the things that has come out of this change in administrations, this democratic change in administrations, is, is a clear move in the direction of support for, for legal abortion and a number of measures already taken or planned by the very young Biden administration. So we're gonna have to, as we work through what it means to celebrate democracy, and as we work through democracy in America in conjunction with that, really be thinking about how do we ensure, as you've been saying, that the expression of that majority will is consistent with that moral dependent. Now, we move on in the second part of the speech to what President Biden had to say about unity. And, and so, again, he repeated that theme, he defined that theme, so let's, let's talk about this. And it, he actually begins by transitioning from democracy to unity. So he says, to overcome these challenges, and he's just listed off a number of 
challenges, a list we would all be very familiar with in our present context. To restore the soul and to secure the future of America requires more than words. It requires that most elusive of things in a democracy, unity, unity. In another January in Washington on New Year's Day, 1863, Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation. When he put pen to paper, the president said, if my name ever goes down into history, it will be for this act and my whole soul is in it. My whole soul is in it. Today on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people and uniting our nation. I ask every American to join me in this cause. Uniting to fight the common foes we face, anger, resentment, hatred, extremism, lawlessness, violence, disease, joblessness, hopelessness. And of course, he, he goes on from there. But what does it mean to say that our common foes are things like anger, resentment, hatred? These are things that are part of the human condition. Are there people attached to these things? It's people that get angry, people that are resentful, people that hate. Extremism is an expression of a person's ideology or a group's ideology, as is lawlessness, violence. Right? These are things that are part of the human condition and expressed as human beings live out their fallen natures. So if we're going to unite against these things, are we uniting against individuals? Are we uniting against groups? Right? And in that sense, how thick and deep can that unity be? And, and of course, one of the obvious questions that was lingering in the air over that speech is, is the only lawlessness, is the only extremism, is the only violence that we're really concerned about that, that emerges out of, out of Trump supporters? Or is there an actual desire for the left and the right to both police their borders? Yeah, I think you've said two important things there, Matt. One, you know, when you talk about moral agents, moral agents are proper nouns, right? Anger is not a proper noun, nor is resentment, hatred, extremism, lawlessness, or violence, right? Those are attributes of a moral agent that we all rightly uh, should want to guard against, and we all should all rightly want, want to lessen. So that's the first great point I think that you make. And the, and the second point that you make is that those, those are attributes that we hold as fallen moral agents, not as a group, right? Not, not as part of a certain organization, but that we just hold as being human beings. So it's that anger, resentment, hatred, extremism, lawlessness, violence that has to be lessened by all, right? And that as, so uh, in, in many ways, if this is your common foe, your, your common foe, right, is fallen humanity. And um, as you mentioned, uh, is that what's going to happen here, or is is the common foe going to be particularized as the other side? And that's that's the great challenge, right? Because of course it's a very difficult matter <laughs> to take on the fall, and you're not going to overcome the fall. And so the tendency is to identify the fallenness of those that are your opponents in some way as a more serious matter than that which you see in perhaps those that are your allies. I was going to say, we are the innocents and, and you are the transgressors. Uh, so here we go again, right? We're, we're, back, we're back to Agamemnon and Achilles pretty quickly from a speech that you know, has, has the air, the rightful air of wanting unity. Right. And we can hope that it's going to be better than that. But I think we all have reason to doubt that and that there's concern 
based upon the politics and the political season we've been through and just some of the way that the, the speech framed these questions, that, that there will be much more of an effort at uh, policing the right than there will be at policing the left. Now, as he goes on in the speech and develops this idea of unity further, he, he actually cites Augustine declaring that a people was a multitude defined by the common objects of their love. And then he goes on to enumerate what he thinks the common objects of love for Americans are. Uh, he says opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, honor, and yes, the truth. So these are the things that we love, according to President Biden, and that in that, in that sense, in this Augustinian sense, give definition to who we are as a people. And I, and I like many of these words. I mean, opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, and honor, those are, those are all good things. Uh, one of the essays that I read this week uh, on the speech that I thought highlighted this point on um, on loves that we have, common objects uh, that we have of our love, was the Federalist's Ben Domenech's essay. And uh, he, he looked at President Biden's speech and he looked at the reference uh, to Augustine City of God and actually pulled out, you know, that part of Augustine City of God where he'll, he'll talk about the common object of love. And, and Augustine writes the following, Matt, uh, chapter 24 of, of City of God, but if we discard the disdefinition of a people and assuming another say that a people is an assemblage of reasonable beings bound together by a common agreement as to the objects of their love, then in order to discover the character of any people, we have only to observe what they love. Yet whatever it loves, if only it is an assemblage of reasonable beings and not of beasts and is bound together by an agreement as to the objects of love, it is reasonably called a people and it will be a superior people in proportion as it is bound together by higher interests, inferior in proportion as it is bound together by lower. So in Augustine's actual reference to the things that people love, he suggests that what's most important in this equation is whether the thing that you love right, is higher or lower, speaks to higher interests or lower interests. And I think that's what, what's getting lost here, right, is it, it's just simply that we want opportunity, security, liberty, dignity, respect, and honor, uh, or, or do we seek even higher things than that? Do we, do we seek a, a lawfulness uh, that, that is found uh, in our, our founding documents of the Declaration of Independence, um, the self-evident truth that all men are created equal that's found uh, in, in our federal constitution and that might act as an object of our love that would bind us together in a higher way. But there's, there's no mention of the constitution here. There's no mention of the Declaration of Independence here. Uh, there's no mention of the past here. And I think the problem, right, is that this is this debate that we're having over who we are as a people, and can we any more embrace the idea of America as established at its founding, uh, warts and all lived out, uh, or must we reject that and, and build upon something new that, that we project forward? I think we've obviously find that as you work into the definitions of, of some of these key terms, right, that's where all the political action is. And so I think at the end of the speech, 
President Biden helps us to address those issues with ongoing questions, right? If we recognize that we're not going to agree, what, what do we do? And so he says, history, faith, and reason show the way, the way of unity. We can see each other not as adversaries, but as neighbors. We can treat each other with dignity and respect. We can join forces, stop the shouting, and lower the temperature. For without unity, there is no peace, only bitterness and fury, no progress, only exhausting outrage, no nation, only a state of chaos. And I think that that's all right. And there's, there's something true there as he appeals to a common ethic that would allow us to see something more in my neighbor than somebody that I disagree with politically. Uh, that there's, there's something more to who they are and to our relationship in, in community. And I hope that that's a message that will be, that will be heated. Um, but I think, again, the, the, the test of that isn't going to be whether you can speak in those general terms on your inauguration day. That, that's good to do that, but that's not really a difficult test. And it's not really whether you can point out the faults of those over there who are violating these precepts. But can you actually turn the camera toward yourselves, speaking of your, your own coalition of political leaders and followers and say, and we're not doing this very well over here, right? Do you have enough self-awareness and willingness to engage in self-criticism to actually see the faults of your own movement in the midst of all this? Because if you don't, then we're not going to get very far because everyone else will see that plank in your eye even if you're focused on the speck in theirs. Yeah, I had the opportunity this past week, Matt, on, on Monday on Martin Luther King Jr. Day to give a couple uh, addresses uh, to the student body, addresses slash discussions. And you know, one of the most remarkable things about uh, the speech that I read from his letter from a Birmingham jail is that uh, he, he puts forward just this idea you know, before direct action of kind of a self-reflection in which you gather the evidence, um, you're willing to uh, negotiate a settlement, uh, and then you go through kind of a process of self-purification where you figure out what that plank is in your own eye before acting. And I think, you know, very rarely do we do that anymore. So these, these are, this is a, a welcome aspirational ideas that are present within the end of President Biden's speech, uh, but it, it Will we live out what the justice that we seek uh, in a way where we are respectful uh, and we are cognizant um, humbly of our own faults? And 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 let's hope that this is the case. Um, and let's work toward that and 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 be that way, whether or not um, uh, supporters of President Biden do so or not. I I think it's a lesson that non-supporters of President Biden could carry out in, in their lives. Yeah, and I've, I've said this phrase before, this, this podcast, that the idea of policing your own borders. I think one of the things we've, we've tried to do over the course of the campaign as two people who are, who are conservatives is to point out bad arguments on the conservative side and bad causes on the conservative side and speak maybe to those that are listening to us that are sympathetic to the political ideas that, that we hold dear to say, okay, but don't go there. And, you know, this, this way, but not, but not by those means. And uh, so we've, we've, we've no doubt have our blind spots even as we do that. But, but I think it's important that in this moment, as we try to move forward from this contentious context in which we live, that, that 
both sides be committed to that. And honestly, progressives will have to be more committed to it. They're, they are now politically and culturally ascendant. They've been culturally ascendant, but they're politically ascendant. They, they have power. And so in some sense, they have the primary burden of, of putting out the fire and, and calling off the war. And so the challenge to them is, will they do it? Now, we should do that, whether they do or not, as you just said. But, but if there's going to be the kind of unity that would bring peace, not, not a false unity, but a, but a true unity in, in common efforts toward the common good, it's going to take those who have more power to lay down some measure of that power that they could exercise and act on the basis of right rather than the force that might be easily available and more, at least immediately successful. Yeah, Lincoln's definition of democracy, right? As I would not be a slave, nor would I be a master. Much more to say on these issues as we move forward in the weeks to come and work our way through democracy in America and see how the Biden administration unfolds. Um, now let's turn our attention to the grade book. And if you're not following politics closely, it's probably because you're distracted with the NFL playoffs. This is a championship weekend coming up in the NFL. And we'll talk more about the individual games in a few minutes because we have to make our, our picks as hazardous as that may be. We're both Patriots fans, and this is the second consecutive year that they haven't been in the AFC Championship. And that follows on a string of eight years in a row where they were. And so, you know, you kind of feel like we're beginning to experience what it's like to be a normal football fan, right? Where, you know, you, you don't always have a shot at the Super Bowl. And so what we're going to do for the grade book is look at four different approaches that you might take when your team's not in the championship finals, not, not on their way, perhaps, to the Super Bowl. All right, so, so here's my first option for you, Dave. Just root for the favorite. Right? Your team lost, get on a bandwagon and, and see if you can ride it all the way to the championship. My kids do this all the time. Um, my Patrick in particular, uh, especially when like, we, we had the Patriots in the Super Bowl. If they're down by touchdown, like he starts right. rooting for the Giants. And <laughs> yeah. we're like, Pat, we're going to put you outside. You know, right. no, no more of this. And he'll continue right until the end just looking at the score. So um, I actually, uh, it may have been because I grew up, uh, my dad was a Braves fan. I, I grew up rooting for the underdog. Uh, there were a lot of underdog seasons in the 1970s. If you were an Atlanta Braves fan, you were situated at the bottom uh, of the NL East. So um, I don't root for the favorite. Uh, so I, I understand why kids would want to, but uh, I, I like the surprise victory. So uh, I'm going to say rooting for the favorite is a D. Okay. Yeah. That, that's a bit more of my tendency. I think it's not so much that I want to be right. It's that I, I love great teams. And, and so I, I want to see great teams do great things. And I, I always root for the dynasty, you know, unless it's against my team, but I, I always want somebody to win three championships in a row. Then if they win three, I want to see them win four. I, I want to see something historic and, and big and, and great. So I'm going to give that one a B. Second option uh, this is this is maybe not appealing to the better angels of our nature, but maybe more natural. Uh, root against your rival, right? If you can't win, at least your rival can't win either. I, I'm going to give this. I mean, I'm, I'm not happy that I'm going to give this grade because it's not something I'm proud of. But 
but in reality, if I practiced it, um, uh, yes, it's, it's about a B plus a minus and you know, I, my practicing it probably 90% of the time, um, can, could I ever root, you know, for the New York jets or Miami dolphins? No, there's just, there's no way I could root for either of those two teams, the bills perhaps, but, um, yeah, I understand the rival thing. B plus a minus. Yeah, I, that, that one's going to be pretty high for me too. And I mean, certainly in baseball, this is what I do. I, I root for the Red Sox first and against the Yankees second. And if the Red Sox don't win the World Series, then there's some pretty substantial consolation that comes to me whenever the Yankees are, are kicked out of the playoffs or they don't make the playoffs altogether. So yeah, I got to say, it's, I'm, not, I'm not proud of it, but it's definitely how I approach baseball. Football, I don't think quite as much. The rivalries aren't quite as bitter in my mind, but, but still – I'm, I'm definitely not wanting to see yeah, the Patriots rivals successful. I'm, I'm tempted in this direction. I'll give that a B plus also. All right. Third option, embrace the Cinderella story. Uh, root for the best championship storyline. You know, it's one of those things you always find around this time of year. These sports writers who are trying to find the angle, you know, give you somebody to root for. Oh, if this happens, wouldn't that be great? Um, so look for that and then kind of jump on one of those storylines. Yeah, here I'm going to give it an A and I'm go back to something you said before. I mean, I, I love rooting for excellence and I think that it would be amazing if Tom Brady, you won a seventh Super Bowl. I mean, just a, the fact that he's in the championship game with a new team is great. So yeah, this Sunday, I'm all in to the Bucks, and and I definitely, you know, would love nothing more uh, than uh, for them to beat uh, either the Chiefs or, or the Bills. Yeah, so uh, it, that's fun. You know, it's, uh, North Carolina State with Jim Valvano. I mean, you go back through the list of like awesome victories by Cinderella's and I think that that's just, that's why I like March Madness, right? That's the, that's the kind of element that really gets me going in college basketball. So I, I think an A for the Cinderella story. I, the, the, I can definitely be appealed to by some of these, you know, where you, you read some human interest story and boy, think, oh, I really would want that, that person to win a championship. Certainly, you know, a player that's been around for a long time and hasn't won a championship and wants to go out on top. Those kind of stories are Interesting to me too. I'm not sure you can quite say that about Brady. It's been a couple of years though since he didn't you know, last won the Super Bowl. So he's he's desperate to to win another one. But yeah, I I I, I can be appealed to by the right storyline on those. So I'll, I'll give that a, a B minus. All right, last option. Um, if you're really bitter, you can just check out. Right, pretend nothing's happening. Go on with your life. Any temptation in that direction, Dave? Uh, there have been a couple, you know, times this sports season where, you know, the you know, politics coming into sports has kind of made me want to check out. But it's, uh, I, I think that that's an impossibility uh, for me. I just, uh, I'm, I'm so tuned in to this stuff, and it's part of a rhythm of of my year. All right, I, I, I love watching these games with people. I, I find it great, you know, when I invite people over who happen to be fans of the teams I'm watching. It's just. It's kind of fun uh, to, to, to get together for these occasions. So uh, check out would be an F in my book. Okay. I'll probably give that a, a C minus. I, I can't really pull it off. Just like you're saying, it's, it's tough for me to just pretend I don't care. I've tried it a few times. You know, I've, I've just gotten mad and uh, ah, who needs this silly game? You know, I'm going to focus on more important things, but now it always drags me back in in the end. I, I can't, I can't pull that off for long. All right. Well, speaking of these games then, so, you know, last week we made our, our picks for the divisional round and 
you know, rooting and, and picking are two different things. So I, I was definitely rooting for the Bucks against the Saints, but I thought the Saints would win anyway, which turned out to be wrong. Uh, we both got Green Bay over the Rams. Dave, you also got that Bucks game. Neither of us got the Bills over the Ravens. We both thought the Ravens would win. And the Browns kept it close enough to keep it within the, the point spread. The Chiefs, of course, in part because Pat Mahomes was out for a substantial part of the game. So uh, you were 2-2. Two and two. I was 1-3. and three. Uh, You've got both of your Super Bowl picks still alive, though, Dave. So any second thoughts going forward? You still think it might be Packers and Chiefs? I think it will be. I'm, I'm trying to, even as I'm making the pick right now, to just t- talk my way into picking uh, the Buccaneers, but yeah. uh, I, I can't do it. I, I think it's going to be a Packers uh, Chiefs uh, Super Bowl. Uh, I think that um, it'll be, I believe, a fairly low scoring game uh, if uh, the weather is what we think it's going to be in Green Bay. So um, I'll, I'll take the Packers and, and the under. Uh, in in that instance, and then um, for the Chiefs Bills, I I mean the Bills have had a great year. I'm, I'm surprised they're here right now. That could be a wild game. Uh, that might be one for the ages. Um, so I I definitely think that would be high scoring. And uh, yeah, I think uh, hopefully both great games are great to watch. But Packers over the Bucks and the under, Chiefs over the Bills and the over. All right, I'm gonna agree with you on both those points. So both. Packers and Chiefs are three-point favorites, so they you know, should be close games. Uh, the Packers and Bucks, it's a 51-point over-under, so that, that's pretty high. Um, both of the games last week hit 50 on the nose, so I guess they have basically saying let's just kind of rinse and repeat. But I, I kind of think, along with you, it's going to be more like you know 24 to 20, something like that. That's, I'll take Packers 24 to 20. And so that would just get over that three-point margin, under 51. And then, likewise, I think, I think Bills and Chiefs, I think they're going to light it up. I think it looks like Mahomes is going to be back. And Josh Allen will be able to keep up with them more or less, not, maybe not quite down to the end. But, yeah, I'd love to see like a 37-31. I think that's it's going to be something like that. And, you know, be very entertaining, obviously. And set up what could be a real entertaining Super Bowl if it's Packers and Chiefs. Honestly, any of these combinations, I think you'll have a good game in the yeah. Super Bowl, but, but Packers and Chiefs, you know, two teams that have been great offenses all year and I think could really put up an entertaining game. I'm hoping we both are absolutely wrong and that what happens <laughs> is that uh, Brady leads the Buccaneers to the Super Bowl uh, to play the Bills. Uh, we've gone to games in Buffalo, and uh, I, don't, I forget what Brady's record is um, against Buffalo. 32-3. Uh, Thirty-two and three, but how how awesome would that be uh, as a Patriots fan and, and awful as a Bills fan if <laughs> you Brady leaves the division, you win it, um, tables are turned, only to see this guy back in the Super Bowl and, and have to play him. So yeah, the guy's been blocking you for twenty years in the division, and he finally leaves, and there he is in the Super Bowl waiting for you. Yeah, you're right. There, there's something definitely to root for there. Uh, I guess that's one of those situations where you pick it one way and you, maybe you root the other and one way or the other, you're happy. So Sure. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks again for listening. And please remember to subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget, we are on Instagram at Democracy in America Today. And you can also contact us by email, democracyinamericatoday at gmail.com. We look forward to talking to you next week.